0: Hey there, welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. This time, 50 years ago, each of the tallest mountains on the seven continents had been summited, except for one. At 16,050 feet, Mount Vincent is Antarctica's tallest peak. And in 1966, the American Antarctic Mountaineering Expedition was organized to try to make a first ascent. This year, the 50th anniversary of this iconic accomplishment, some of the members of the team got together at the American Alpine Club's annual benefit dinner in Washington, D.C. Over the next hour, we'll hear about the impact of this historic expedition. Now, I have to be honest here. When I first saw these guys walk up on stage, or at least try to walk up on stage, I was skeptical about how lively this thing was going to be. There's a picture on our website. You'll understand what I'm talking about. But then, right when the discussion started, a a spark ignited. These guys are so passionate, excited. They're funny. Hearing them talk about it, you would not expect that it's been 50 years since they did it. I'm so excited for you to hear this. This was recorded at the American Alpine Club's 2016 Benefit Dinner. It's presented by REI and the North Face. Special thanks to National Geographic. This episode of Mountain Meister is supported by Mountain House. Before I was introduced to the company, to make a breakfast scramble, I'd have to pack three eggs, a couple of potatoes, pepper and onion, salt, a cast iron skillet, a piece of pork, a meat grinder. Things got heavy and messy very, very quickly. It's hard to keep your pack clean and light and still eat well out there. That's why Mountain House creates meals like the breakfast skillet for you. All you have to do is add the hot water and wait Ten minutes. Cleanup is easy, too, because you're eating it right out of the pouch. For 20% off of your purchase, go to mountainhouse.com Meister. You'll get a secret code to use at checkout there.
1: We have on stage here a few men who took an an adventure in 1966 and they're still around to tell the tale. Uh, Conrad Anker, longtime friend of the club and maybe some of you know of him as a climber. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Uh, but Conrad's going to take the lead here and introduce our panel and walk us through our presentation. Thank you, Conrad. Thank you, Phil. And uh, thanks everyone for coming in here and uh, the third of the panel discussions here at the American Alpine Club, 2016 annual meeting. So, this is the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the first ascent of Vincent, the Vinson Massif, which is the highest point in Antarctica. It's our fifth largest continent, home to 90% of the world's glaciers and approximately 70% of the world's fresh water. It's a pretty important place, and the um, top of the continent is 16,050 feet. That's the Vinson Massif. And I guess uh, somehow in the U.S. we've had a proclivity of naming big, important mountains after... Elected officials from low-lying, flat states. In this case, it was a congressman from Georgia, but he was an advocate for um, Antarctic exploration, and we respect that. And there is no indigenous culture in Antarctica, so the name is part of that. Uh, part of that. I've been to Antarctica, worked there for a decade, from '92 to 2002, as a mountain guide. That's my background on this, and it's um, it a great pleasure here to have uh, five of the uh, ten members of the original. Uh, 1966 expedition, Sam to my left, Nick, Bill, uh, Brian, and Ichi, and on the very far left is um, Damien, um, who is a a cartographer and fellow climber. So we have a um, collection of slides that are here, and I'm going to be the the fellow in charge of the slides, and that will be um, kind of our, um, I'll be working through this. We initially had this plan that we'd all have four minutes and a series of slides, but we collated all the slides into one presentation, where we'll be able to uh, work on them in, um, in any one point. So, this is um, the original flag that we see here on the upper left, and that was the, um, um, when they were there, That they, this beautiful sl- uh, slide with penguins. So those of us on the panel, we do have monitors up here, so what we see there will be, yeah, and this is um, the, the laser point, thank you, Sam. So, we're going to start out with Sam. Um, we have the illustration here of our team members on there. If, um, if you can see that, we've got um, going on the back there John Evans, um, Dick Wallstrom, Nick Clinch, Barry Corbett, Pete Schoning, Charlie Hollister, Sam Silverstein, Brian Martz, Bill Long, and Ichi e. Fukushima. So, I'm turning it over to you, Sam.
2: All right. Before, before we talk about Antarctica, I'd just like to welcome. Uh, The families of the Shonings, uh, uh, Jonathan Corbett, I believe, is here, and Charlie Hollister's uh, brother and daughter and their uh, significant others are here with them. And uh, uh, I'd just like to welcome them and say that we uh, very much miss uh, their uh, brothers, husbands, and our very good friends. Uh, you know Pete Schoening, was famous for a belay on K2 that held six people falling on a steep ice slope. So when you climbed with Pete Schoening, you knew the odds were good.
1: <laughs>
2: Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, and yeah. we can.
1: Um, we should mention John Evans, who. Um, had so uh, and- John
2: Evans, who's the strongest, was one of the strongest mountaineers of my generation, and certainly when John walked in the room, he filled the whole door, uh, and it was all muscle. Uh, John made the first ascent of Tyree with Barry Corbett in a spectacular uh, climb. Uh, John fell on the ice on his uh, driveway and broke his hip. Uh, He should have been wearing crampons, but uh, he wasn't. Uh, And uh, uh, as Pierce Gardner will tell you, uh, the best way to keep yourself healthy is not to fall as a codger. So, uh, John, unfortunately, is not here or he could talk to you about Tyree. I guess the place I should start is how did we get uh, to Antarctica in the first place? And there were two expeditions, one initiated independently by uh, Pete Schoening, uh, Dick Wallstrom, Ishi, uh and Brian Martz, uh, and Julian Ansell on the west coast, and one initiated by Charlie Hollister and myself on the east coast. And uh, Charlie and I started this out by uh, sitting around one night. We'd just gotten back from Denali. We said, what are we going to do next? And the pictures of uh, the high peaks of the Vinson Massif and the Sentinel Range, discovered by uh, Bill Long on the Marie Birdland Overland Traverse during the International Geophysical Year, uh, those peaks had just, pictures of them had just been published. And we were excited by them. And so at about 2 in the morning, having uh, talked about it, I said, I have a great idea. Let's go together with the Russians, uh, join American-Russian expedition. And the name of the book will be Commissars and Cookstoves. Uh, uh, So we called up the State Department and said, we have a great idea. And the State Department said, in no way would we uh, sponsor a joint uh, great powers expedition to Antarctica We became a nationalistic enterprise and followed that all the way through. Uh, We lobbied everyone we could talk to uh, at any hour of the day or night. I know we woke up Secretary McNamara uh, the morning after the Metropolitan Opera opened uh, with a friend who was calling him to make sure uh, during the uh, Vietnam War that we would get the cooperation of the Defense Department because we needed airplanes to get us from Uh, C-130s to get us from New Zealand to Antarctica and then to fly around to Antarctica. Uh, The expedition was put together in uh, less than six months. Uh, I had the temerity once to call the Defense Department, talk to a colonel, and say, colonel, if you had to run the Vietnam War the way I'm running this expedition, you'd go nuts. Uh, You begin to think of the lack of perspective that remark makes. But uh, we were crazy in a good way, and I want to say something about that, because being crazy in a good way is the way you get things done in this world. Really having a strong motivation to do something and make it happen, that's why this expedition came off. And it turned out that by merging two expeditions under the leadership of Nick Clinch, we were able quickly, to get to know each other, to work harmoniously, and to climb with great enjoyment together, and it soon became one expedition. Uh, uh, We were all good at our craft, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. You're going to see some mountains
1: that will make your mouth water. Thank you, Sam. Um, It's not frozen. (laughs) The... um Perhaps, Bill, yeah, thank you. Wonderful. If you could share with us some of your observations uh, from 1958 and seeing these mountains for the first time. Yes.
3: How many of you have had this idea that you really wanted to do something? Show me your hands. I suspected as much. (laughs) And um, I I want to ask you another question. What was the famous answer for why do you climb a mountain? Uh, That was not my answer, (laughs) but it is the standard answer. My answer was I wanted to explore, and the tops of the mountains where I lived in California seemed like a place where no one had been. And so I like to climb mountains no one had climbed before in a sense of exploration. But this all came together in the Antarctic. In 1957, with the over-snow uh, traverses there that the International Geophysical put, uh, put together, uh, we were able to find Uh, Maybe a dozen new mountains, and we also extended this mountain range that was called Sentinel Mountains. And uh, we had our surveyor along, and we surveyed the peaks. We knew where they were, and we also surveyed for their height. And uh, so I had achieved what I wanted to. I was an explorer and a mountain climber, and when this expedition came along, I had to be on it, and I was.
1: Brian, um, you were the youngster on this trip, age uh, twenty-three. As a kid. <laughs> a kid, and you had a great mentor in Nick Lynch. Um, this was also—it was 1966. It was uh, the, the eve of the summer of love. It was um, the Vietnam War was going on. Um, there was things were changing in our nation. But what for you was the significance of this trip? And then immediately after being on this trip, what was your life like?
4: We should have talked about this earlier. I had an answer for you.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, then it would be—it
1: wouldn't be spontaneous. So we got to. It, it wouldn't be.
4: <laughs> I was trying to avoid Vietnam, so I ran off, and some people went to Canada. I went to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> and you won. <laughs> it didn't work out anyway. When I was down there, we had to check in every two days with a radio, and. Somewhere in the middle of the expedition, I got a call from uh, the Department of Defense saying, your appointment in officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode Island, is day after tomorrow. We expect you there at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, it ain't going to happen, guys. (laughs) But I I ended up in the Navy anyhow, so that transpired right.
1: Wonderful. Um, H.E., any thoughts about um, your participation and, and things that were significant with you?
5: Well, you know... I, this was my first big expedition, and you hear about how the um, the social relations go sometimes not so well, other times great. This was just a fantastic trip. You know, everything went smoothly, largely due to the leadership of Nick Clinch, I'm sure, but it was just a wonderful experience. And then th- this event, which is very nice for us to um, be honored, is nice for us for maybe even more important reason, and that's to get 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 back together and talk about it, right? And so it's a wonderful reunion experience for us.
1: That's a wonderful part. Damien is um, the scribe of Antarctic. He's written Antarctic mountaineering and knows more about the um, the the continent from a climbing standpoint, but also is well-versed in the Antarctic Treaty. Um, your thoughts on the Antarctic Treaty and um, how it affects climbing and uh, tourism.
6: Yeah, thanks, Conrad. I mean, the Antarctic Treaty is often put up as a, a model of international cooperation, and a lot of the expeditions that have gone down over the years you know, have exhibited that as well. It's worked very well so far in preserving Antarctica, and I think um, the way these guys worked together back then was was a good model of that. So it all started off um, fairly small. There were 12 nations uh, back in 1959, the seven nations that claimed territory, plus um, the US and what was the Soviet Union and a few others. So there was always a political bent to a lot of the expeditions that go to Antarctica, and as Sam said, there was a bit of that involved with, uh, with this expedition. They, they wanted to get Vincent climbed so that no one else would go down there because, like now, they don't particularly want tourists going down there and needing rescue. So when these guys were were keen to go down it sort of serendipitously came together and um and that's why they helped support them but this is actually at the south pole uh, that previous one there um obviously not a mountain in sight for about a thousand miles but um <laughs> this is the ceremonial south pole and uh, that's the new south pole station there which replaces the old dome that you might have seen Yeah, so it's, um, it's a continent for peace and a continent for science and that's what uh, most of the activity has been over the years. Um, no armies, no fighting, all that sort of thing and uh, people should uh, exchange scientific information as much as possible and, and a lot of my work which was going down from 2001 to 2009 on a private scientific uh, uh, project, mapping and climbing and doing GPS measuring was uh, sort of in that vein and we shared a lot of our uh, information with the USGS and a lot of the other Antarctic authorities, uh, the results of which we'll see a little bit later.
2: What was really uh, is so important to think about the Antarctic Treaty is that the Antarctic Treaty, first of all, was the first Cold War treaty. Uh, it, it, it was the model for how the world could cooperate to keep a continent pristine, to prevent nuclear uh, nuclear waste, armament, uh, construction, all kinds of uh, heinous activities, and to preserve the continent for science. So we were the beneficiaries of that. The second thing that's important about uh, the Antarctic Treaty is that once it was signed, it allowed Phil Smith, who was then uh, 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 Associate Director of the Office of Polar Programs, uh, who understood in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s that Antarctica was a suitable place for adventure tourism. Think of all the things that are going on today in Antarctica by private groups uh, doing wonderful things and enjoying the continent and not only enjoying it, but further exploring it. Phil Smith understood that in the, in the late 50s and he got the government to change its policy and that change in policy led to them letting us go, or encouraging us to go. Uh.
3: And uh, symbolic of the Antarctic Treaty, uh, in my backpack were 13 small flags, including the American flag and all the flags of the nations of the signatory, nations of the treaty. And uh, if you've seen in National Geographic magazine, the picture of us on the summit, various of us on the summit, that summit, the American flag and the National Geographic flag are surrounded by the 13, and flags of the 13 nations.
1: That's
3: exceptional.
2: We were greeted by those, uh, or some of them, uh, when we, when Nick, uh, Dick Wallstrom and I arrived on the summit.
1: Currently, most expeditions to get to Vincent they depart from Punta Reynos, Chile. They fly down in, a, in Aleutian, which is a... Um uh, Russian-built Soviet-era jet, land, and they take a twin otter out to the base. And this time, when you guys launched, you came from New Zealand. And did you guys fly over the pole? No, we
2: flew from New Zealand past uh, uh, Cape Adair and into McMurdo in a, a U.S. Air Force C-130, which measured the number of missions that had flown by the number of penguins it had next to the door. And then uh, we were flown from McMurdo. uh, We flew with the Navy in another ski-equipped C-130 to the mountains. The mountains were fogged in, and so we couldn't land. And so on two hours' notice, we went back to Bird Station, and the Admiral, who was with us, uh, inspected Bird Station. You can imagine how popular we were at Bird Station (laughs) when the Admiral arrived for his annual inspection. And then uh, we left bird Station. Bird Station was like a visit to a Martian uh, community because uh, it was all it, it's all underground, and it w- is all like deep uh, butcher freezers, except they're buried in the ice. So you drive into a huge garage, there's a kind of door stuck on the snow wall at the end. You open the door, and it leads you into a series of tunnels uh, to each of these refrigerated. Rooms, except the room is warmed and the outside is refrigerated, uh, and uh, that's where all the activity goes on. And then we flew back to uh, Vincent, and uh, as we're approaching the mountains for the second time, I'm up in the cockpit, crawling around on the floor, taking pictures out of the windows, and you know, this has been four years in the coming, so I'm really excited and saying, gee whiz, holy smokes, do you see that? Wow. And finally, the admiral looks down to him and says, Kid, you are from the National Geographic Society, aren't you?
1: <laughs> That's a great moment there. Nick, if I may, you had mentioned that on your, um, your pre-departure that you'd met uh, Ed Hillary in New Zealand, and he had some advice for you well, before what you what went happened, down.
7: What happened was,
1: can you hear me? <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> <laughs>
4: This was our leader. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't changed a bit.
3: One
7: fine guy. (laughs) Like the Duke of Plaza Toro. um, I took my one week leave from the law firm when climbing the Tetons, so I didn't have a clue when it was going to happen. And I get to the office on Monday morning, and there is this telegram from Bob Bates. And it's written as if your turn to send me that telegram tomorrow. And it said, are you available... To be leader of an expedition to climb the highest mountain in the antarctic declared to be in the national interest and sponsored by the american alpine club the national geographic department and the department of defense so what could the partners say when i went in and flashed that at them (laughs) and they said okay you can go (laughs) always wondered about my status there so i that evening by sheer coincidence and not just name dropping Ed and Louise Hillary are coming in from New Zealand. They were going to stay with us that night. So we go out to dinner, and we're having dinner, and I casually, as if these things drop on me every day, pull out this telegram and show it to Ed. And he says, well, that's interesting. And then I had to say, very embarrassing, by the way, Ed, do you know where this place is? (laughs) And he says, as a matter of fact, I don't. And I think I'm the first leader, quote, unquote, of an expedition in the history they didn't know where he was going when he became leader. <laughs> so we go home and uh, go, they spread the National Geographic Atlas out over the living room floor. And they're down, hands and knees, looking for this thing. And Betsy, my wife, is standing over us and says, isn't that isn't it the piece of the Antarctic Miss? Oh, there it is. There's where it is. Oh, great. Now we know where we're going. And then I realized it was about the fact we got people like John Evans and Bill Long know this place backwards for and so forth. But I didn't know a thing about it. So I said, hey, I got Hillary here. Let's use him. Say, by the way, Ed, what should I take? And he looks at me casually. He oh, just take lots of down gear and you'll be all right. I said, look, Ed, I'm serious. What should I take? And I'm serious, Nick. You take lots of down gear and you'll be all right. And he was right. We took lots of down gear and we were all right. And as long as I have the mic, and I'm happily going to give it up immediately, is I just want to say what a great group these guys were. They all worked together, and one reason for our success was two, they were very good, and we all worked together, and it was a high privilege, and that's a real privilege for me from the trip to be with this group. Conrad.
3: I I would like to say that uh, our primary objective was to climb what we called then the Vinson Massif. It's now changed to Mount Vinson. But a secondary and very important objective of the trip was to climb Mount Tyree. And that was our difficult one. Uh, And and then there were about four others that we also climbed. Uh, So that was sort of the overall description of what we had in mind to do. And
1: uh, you some might of the want to people know. down
3: here were involved in, in the climb. We were all involved in the climb of, of Vincent, But uh, only if two people were successful on Mount Tyree.
2: <clears throat> you might want to say something uh, about how these mountains got named. Uh, Admiral Tyree told me the story uh, that the pilots came into him one day and said, uh, I don't know whether you know the story, uh, the pilots came into to him one day and said, Admiral, uh, we were flying around in the Soviet sector in uh, eastern Antarctica and we just flew around a 25,000 foot mountain. It's enormous, Admiral. He said, are you guys sure? He said, absolutely, Admiral. So he said, well, I'm going to name it after uh, 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 Vincent, who's chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. That's not a bad thing for an admiral to do. So he sends off the wire, highest peak in Antarctica, discovered, uh, named in your honor. And uh, three weeks later, the pilots come in. They have this real hangdog look. He said, you guys crack up another airplane? I said, it may be worse than that, Admiral. He said, why? He said, well, we were back in the Soviet sector yesterday, and that big mountain that you named after Vincent, He says, yes. He says, nothing but a bunch of clouds, Admiral. <laughs> so as Tyree told me the story he said well you guys go out and find me the highest mountain in Antarctica tomorrow (laughs) but Tyree had the last laugh there is no mountain in this range and one of the few mountains in the world I think that is as beautiful from every aspect as Mount Tyree it's technically very difficult It's uh, an extremely challenging part of the world, and it is gorgeous. Uh, In a storm, there is no place in the Sentinel Range that you look at Mount Tyree and you don't realize it's the gem of the range. And frankly, it's what got Charlie and myself interested in climbing this. We all knew we could get up uh, Vincent Massif. The question was, could we climb Mount Tyree?
1: There's a great point on that. This uh, next slide is um,
3: –
1: <laughs> the gentlemen are taking a bath here, so <laughs> it wasn't for um, – but what a bunch of handsome young men. <laughs> and these are their slides. I didn't put this in here for <laughs> – you, you
2: should know that Antarctica is not as hostile a place in the mountains as it's thought to be. It's like being in the Swiss Alps. On a, or Colorado, on a nice winter day. It's Because in these big cirques, it's a, like a reflector oven. And so I have pictures of guys uh, coming down, packing big loads, who were too hot in their down gear, so they were stripped to the waist, uh, carrying big packs uh, uh, in Antarctica. Charlie Hollister, I have a nice picture of him sitting uh, in his shorts, writing a note to his wife, uh, Antarctica could be in a sunny day with a wind, without any wind chill. It was just terrific.
1: But at the same time, it can be quite stormy. And your team experienced two storm events in, were you down there for five weeks total? Six. Six weeks. So the storm, I wasn't
2: in the tent in the storm. Uh, I was in base camp, which was completely flattened by the storm. And, you know, you try and build a snow, house, a snow cave or some uh, place that you can get out of the storm. But the ice was so hard that we barely got down three feet after two days of digging. Nick
3: was up in, uh, and, and Bill were up in uh, Camp 1. We were, we were at Camp 1, yes, and uh, I, I had my snow shovel against the, ski, the tent pole and spent the night leaning on it, and our tent did stay up. But we uh, it, it, I think the wind was not as hard up at Camp One as it was at base camp, I think it flattened base camp bet big time the stuff we
2: were jo- I, lived, I lived I lived and, in a... and
3: uh, the, the, everybody, what about you guys?
4: Oh, it, it totally flattened us. We had to take the tent poles out and sit with the tent beating on us for two and a half days, something like that. never went outside, and it blew about three feet of snow out from under us. Sam remembers trying to dig. I just remember waiting for the snow to blow away from us, blew all kinds of. Gear down the gear down the glacier, we lost lots of equipment uh, to that storm from base camp.
1: So if you have any questions whether alpine climbing is good for you, it builds character, and it, look at these gentlemen. <laughs> They're healthy and vibrant, so go out there and have a two-and-a-half-day beatdown without your tent. <laughs> I think all of us, we, uh, we kind of want to go there, and we have some of those, uh, those points on there.
2: You should know that... Uh, Every expedition, I bring one book to read. So uh, 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 on Denali, I brought Gone with the Wind. And uh, I have never read the first third of Gone with the Wind because we tore it into pieces and shared it around in the tent during a five-day storm. And on the fifth day, it was Gone with the Wind because the tent shredded. (laughs) (coughs) In Antarctica, during this storm, I
1: read the full-length Crime and Punishment. <laughs> this is determined. So on the uh, screen here, we have Mount Gardner. And perhaps... Oh, that's Ossensa. That's I'm sorry. I can't read it from here, so thank you. Um, um, but your comments and your ideas about this is sense. Well,
3: I happen to see Long Gables coming up there okay. on the screen. Yeah. Uh, next picture, but... Uh, oh. Uh, and uh, that, see that beautiful long ridge that comes down, the dominant ridge? Uh, long Gables had two peaks.
5: I'm going to butt in here to mention that this Bill Long is one of the brothers for whom this mountain was named at the time. Uh, there's so there's a peak here
3: it. and a peak here. So uh, since bo- uh, both of us were involved, my, t- my brother and I, in the mapping of these mountains, and, uh, I, and I will have to admit that we suggested the name to <laughs> 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 the Board on Geographic Names, and they, they bought it for a while, but, and they, they still bought it. But uh, 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 So I thought it was neat that the, our two brothers had the peaks that were on one mountain. And I get along quite well with my brother, by the way, so... That was, that was good. Uh, so that our, our route on this mountain, and I've got s- two of the fellows who were with me are right here beside me. To correct you. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for that reason, <laughs> I, 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 they both have a better memory of exactly where we went than I do.
5: Well, you can still describe it, but yeah, we put a camp on the... Ridge here. We actually tried a glacier route here and we didn't like it. It didn't seem very safe after we started up. So we regrouped, climbed this ridge, put a tent here, and then we climbed this ridge and then crossed over to the other side and climbed to the top. And I think uh, we have several other pictures coming up that will show the camp here. Um, okay, and this, this is an aerial. So this is the ridge we climb. And there are all these parallel ridges coming off, and then it's just a spectacular mountain range. This is Mount Anderson that uh, Damien has made a first ascent of, and he has a spectacular picture of this mountain from that side. And there's another picture coming up, right, of the... uh, Oh, this is not... This is one of Sam's masterpieces lower down on the glacier somewhere. Anyhow, um, yeah, we... we, um, this, this mountain gave us a lot of trouble um, in the sense that we tried many times. So the first trip was up the glacier. We bagged it. The second trip was on the ridge. We got quite high on it, and then we bailed. We were pretty conservative by the time, this time, because we climbed the four highest mountains already. And we said, we don't want to screw up now because in, you know we were, everything is going very well. So we were very conservative. So we bailed the second time. And we had about four days or three days before our pickup. We were away from the main part of the group by about 10 miles and our communication was not very good or non-existent. And so we went on on our own until, as I recall, January 12th. And around the 8th or 9th or something like that, we gave it the second shot, gave up on it. And then it stormed the next couple of days. And so we thought, well, we're the first only party to not make a summit on this entire expedition. And we we're lying around in the tents until the 11th. And around nine o'clock in the evening, as I recall, it cleared. And so then there's this big argument about, you know, do we dare try it now? And if we leave in the next three hours, they can't say we, you know, like fools, tried it on the day we're being, able, being picked up. We can leave before. So I think about 11 o'clock at night, we went charging up there. You have to realize that this is the Antarctic summer, so the sun never sets, just, just goes around, right? So a little before midnight, we went charging up in there, and by 7 o'clock in the morning, at I think something like 4 o'clock in the morning, we saw the, a motor toboggan come into the basin, and a lone figure got out, walked up to our camp where we left the kind souls we were, left a note saying, we're not here, right? <laughs> we're up on the mountain. So then we saw the figure go back down to the motor tri- toboggan and disappeared, right? Had we had modern telephones and things, I don't think they would have said, you can go up at you know three hours before the pickup date. Anyway, by seven o'clock in the morning, we were on top and then we came back down. And I think if you flip through some of the pictures, we, there are other pictures of uh, the, the climb. But it, it, it was we got back, what, maybe at noon or something like that. So it was sort of like a 20-hour round trip thing. And uh, it was a fairly hard climb. This young guy led us um, through some of the hardest sections. You can comment on some of those if you want. But it was really a fun trip. And it, it was really nice to be able to climb a mountain that was uh, named after one of us
6: who was on the trip. I think what these guys won't tell you is that I mean, a lot of people think of Antarctica as flat and white, like we see in those other photos, and th- these guys' trip was like a quantum leap in the climbing that had been done in Antarctica, and people had been climbing in Antarctica pretty much since the turn of the century, from the early 1900s, but a lot of it was uh, part of scientific exploration, not really for recreation or anything like that. Most of the peaks, obviously, were were lower, closer down to the water and things like that, and so... It's even more impressive that these guys went, they didn't just climb the highest mountain, they climbed the hardest big mountain next in good style. And then, not being satisfied with that, they kept climbing right up until the very end and climbed one of the, the hardest routes, the Long Gables route, right at the end. So you went from having no climbing whatsoever on any of the highest peaks to these guys going down and doing sort of nearly everything at once. So it was incredibly impressive.
0: The second half of this discussion coming up soon. If all this talk about a life-changing adventure gets you excited, how about a summit for someone climb to benefit big city mountaineers? This year's trips include Mount Rainier, the Grand Teton, Kilimanjaro, Everest Base Camp, and more. I personally am going to Mount Hood in June, and there are still a few spots left on our trip if you'd like to join the Mountain Meister crew. All of these trips benefit Big City Mountaineers. They take underserved urban youth on wilderness expeditions and help them learn critical life skills, things like leadership and teamwork. If you are the next person to sign up, listen to this. You're getting a Big Agnes sleeping bag, 15 degree, Big Agnes sleeping pad, an Osprey Kestrel 48 liter pack and $100 off. That's all for the first person that uses the code Meister100 at checkout. Shoot me an email, Ben at mtnmeister.com. If you have any questions.
1: So 40 years on, um, several of you guys launched a, a return journey there. And, uh, this was in, uh, 10 years ago. Um, some of the teams up there and, uh, Brian, looks like you're in that image there. And, Sam, you guys have any comments about this? Well,
2: uh, none of the old guys made it up uh, on the 2006 trip. Uh, But Brooke Long, Bill Long's son, and Lisa Jertz, uh, Pete Schoening's daughter, made it to the summit. Uh, We brought along a a plaque uh, in memory of Pete, Barry, Charlie, and Dick uh, Wallstrom, uh, and left the plaque on the summit uh, in the capable hands of Brooke and Lisa, and they hammered it into the snow up there uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, We learned how modest <laughs> you should know that when John broke his leg, I put his head on the guy in the in the lead. Uh, uh, wheelchair and sent it to him. Uh, you don't have it here. Uh, when, uh, uh, when we were on our way up the glacier, uh, we met other parties coming down and we learned what it is to be a codger. They would stop and talk to us for a minute and say, Oh, yeah, you're the old guys. We heard you were coming.
1: <laughs> so we're... Um we're going to have a brief remembrance of um, your teammates that weren't part of the team, and then we'll open it up to the audience for questions and ideas about this uh, historic climb. So, Barry Corbett, um, which of you esteemed? I went to him? college with Barry.
2: Uh, we kind of egged each other on and, uh, until uh, he left to become a geologist and a skier and then one of the great uh, mountain filmmakers and one of the great climbers of his generation, he, of course, uh, chopped the steps up the uh, Hornbein uh, couloir uh, on the West Ridge of Everest to allow Tom and Willie to make the first ascent to the West Ridge. And uh, uh, if you remember the story, uh, Barry, Tom, and Willie get to the high point, and Willie looks at Barry and says, Barry you have just as much right to go to the summit as any one of us. Uh, And Barry said to them, you're just about over the hill. I've got lots of opportunities left. So Tyree turned out, unfortunately, in Barry's life, to be the last really impressive peak he climbed. Uh, He he became paraplegic after a, a ski uh, helicopter uh, that while, from which he was filming uh, crashed, uh, he went on to be one of the great leaders of disability in this country. Uh, he founded uh, a magazine called uh, New Mobility uh, and a book. Uh, he really led uh, the fight for equal opportunity for people with disabilities. And I remember him saying to me one day, you know, I was at uh, Timberline Lodge on on Mount Hood the other last summer, and they still haven't made it wheelchair accessible. <laughs> Barry was uh, one of the smartest and most uh, interesting people I have ever had the privilege of knowing, and I miss him a lot.
5: I want to butt in here and I tell a Barry Corbett story, uh, a short one. So Brian and Bill and uh, Pete and I were motoring with Nick piloting us as a taxi towards Long Gables on January 6th and approached 6 o'clock um, Zulu time, Greenwich Meridian time, when we had a radio contact. And we could see Mount Tyree, oh, I don't know, five miles down the glacier or something like that. So we all dutifully stopped and turned on the radio and we could hear like maybe Dick or Sam trying to reach the uh, Tyree party, and, and, and then John was the man who uh, manned the radio. Barry didn't want to have anything to do with it, but he must have just ripped the uh, radio out of John's hands and said, look on the summit, you lunkheads. <laughs> and so apparently Sam and Dick were looking for them too low on the mountain, and they had just made the summit at six o'clock. So that was fantastic news, and we went on to Long Gables.
3: As far as the ascent of Tyree uh, goes, uh, to begin with, there was a. It was well. We are about four, three or four thousand feet, and we we're going up to close to uh, uh, sixteen thousand. So it was quite a few thousand vertical feet, and uh, much of it was just a long straight. Great way uh, gaining maybe what 6 or 8000 feet to the plateau up there about 3000 3 4000 3, 4000 4, 4, yeah and uh, uh Pete looks at me, says to turns around to to us and says uh, I am the oldest guy here he says I will chop steps all the way up this this uh, obvious uh, direct line to the direct line to the top of the mountain and they said, that'll be my job, and, uh, and then I'll be done. And I, and I heard that, and I said, yeah, and I'm going to help you, Pete, because <laughs> and, and, I'm next oldest. <laughs> and we did that. <laughs> but uh, the, when we got up top,
4: uh, go on from there, easy or Brian. It would be nice to have pictures of it, but we don't have that. So, Sam, you want to say something about Charlie?
2: Well, Charlie was someone I met in high school. Actually, uh, Charlie's brother is here. Uh, the Hollister in in California is uh, the Hollister family, and uh, uh, Charlie was, uh, let's say, a feral child on the Hollister Ranch. Uh, <laughs> During his teenage years, he probably blew up more sticks of dynamite than anybody you've ever known. Uh, he finally began to reform uh, when he was uh, in college at Oregon, and uh, his marriage uh, reformed him a little bit more. And then uh, he he decided to become an oceanographer. He ultimately became one of the world's great oceanographers, and. Uh, uh, but he had to convince Doc Ewing at Columbia uh, that uh, this guy, with a mediocre college record and uh, a high school record, which uh, uh, the probation officers are still looking at, uh, would uh, would uh, uh, buy. And he went down to came down here to Washington, convict, convinced convinced uh, Doc Ewing that he was a good candidate, and in fact uh, he did a spectacular job at Lamont, Uh, uh, he and Bruce wrote Bruce Hazen, uh, the man who discovered the mid-oceanic ridges. Uh, 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 Charlie uh, uh, was Bruce's graduate student, but they took off three years of graduate school to write a book, The Face of the Deep, which is the first book that describes uh, both the sediments and the uh, organic life in the ocean. And so uh, he had a postdoctoral fellowship at Woods Hole as soon as he finished his Ph.D. at Columbia. And uh, then the expedition came up. And uh, Bruce talks to his proposed Ph.D. mentor, postdoc mentor at uh, Woods Hole. And he says, by the way, uh, uh, K.O. Emery, uh, by the way, K.O., Charlie's going to the Antarctic. And K.O. says, well, he's already two years late. Tell him he can't go. Bruce said, I can't do that. He said, why? Well, he'll go anyway, Bruce said. So he said, uh, well, when he comes back, does he get back to work? Oh, he's full of energy when he gets back. He says, well, tell him
1: have a good time. Thank you. And to Pete Schoening, um, Nick, would you like to speak to Pete?
7: This is about Pete. Pete's the finest mountaineer I've ever known in my life. And you can guess that I've known some pretty darn good mountaineers. People say, how do you organize a trip? And I said, it's simple. You get permission. You get money. You get Pete Schoening. <laughs> and it was a combination of incredible strength, skill, and to top it off, a personality which is so modest that you're all willing to fall on your face carrying Lois to put him in position and to reach the summit. And you put that into the mix, and you've got an incredible combination. And so he was uh, like corn pine and unsolten. He he, he was one of my dearest friends. I just absolutely love the guy. And uh, he deserves every bit of praise that you have heard. He was just truly unbelievable. So... That's my brief summation of Pete Schoening, because I've known, as I said, and all these guys here, unsold. but they, Pete was just a slight step ahead. In fact, I will st- confess for the first time I had a dirty trick, which was the first summit party I needed to mix from both sides. And I, I, I we put together Bill Law, Barry Corbett, John Evans, and Pete Schoening. And I just want, I wish I could have watched from somewhere, but not on it. These guys just chase each other, because I knew that was going to be a show. And they all came back with the greatest respect for Pete. So,
2: Thank you, Nick. You should know that uh, Pete was, uh, unlike the Duke of Placitoro, Pete led from ahead. Uh, and the big challenge was keeping up with Pete. I had known Pete socially, but I'd never climbed with him when we were going to Antarctica. And he arrived at our apartment, and we were going someplace in midtown for a meeting. And uh, we get downstairs, and Pete says, you know, I don't think we ought to take the subway. We ought to walk. And I immediately understood what walking was about. He was going to see whether how how far I could go before he'd run me into the ground. And I was damned if Pete Schoening was going to do that. So I kept talking all the way to Midtown and keeping up with him all the way. And by about the time we got two-thirds of the way, I think he decided, okay, I'm not going to outwalk him. I'll have to try something else. <laughs> Bill, would you
1: like to uh, speak to Dick? Pardon? Would you like to speak to uh, about Dick? Dick,
4: well,
3: Oh, uh, uh, I know very little about Dick Walstrom except that he was a fantastic man on the, on the trip. I had not known him before. However, I would uh, uh, suggest that the Seattle Mountaineer Group... See, I'm, I was sort of a... Uh, a maverick i i came from alaska and that's not a east coast and it's not seattle <laughs> so uh but i well i actually aligned myself with easterners <laughs> so uh w- yeah we can say uh, yeah, go ahead about let's that. talk about sure that.
5: so you know the groups were made up in such a way that four of us came from the seattle area there was a fifth person julian Ansel, who the Navy wouldn't give him permission to go about a week before he went. So he, he's the one who has all the equipment still, brand new, unused. We had dinner with him a couple of, a month ago. Anyway, Dick um, was a, a, a mountain of a man, very uh, quite tall, about tall as Sam, and um, very strong. He was an Olympic bronze medalist in rowing. He was a University of Washington rower, and that's a very strong program. He was one of the instructors in a mountaineering course that I um, signed up with. And that's actually where I met Pete and Brian as well. And uh, he was just re- incredibly strong. His um, wife and daughter will be with us tonight, but he, they're, they're not here yet apparently. Um, and I just remember going up on these glaciers. I ended up um, helping these guys teach as well a few years later. And Dick would, you know, we're talking about solid glaciers, right? Like, way above Timberline on Mount Rainier or wherever. And, you know, this guy, Dick Wallstrom, would come up with, I don't know, five ropes on his back and a sweater, no gloves, whatever, just kind of, you know, cruising along, saying hi to everybody. And he was a wonderful, um, uh, a gentle man. And he was an insurance company actuary, and the, his coworkers had given him as a go away gift when we were coming to the expedition, an Argus C3 camera. And for those of you who are too young to understand what that is, it was a 35 millimeter camera that had square corners, right? It was a box. And it was considered kind of a medium grade at most quality camera. And on the plane flights over to New Zealand and then to Antarctica and to the mountains, he was constantly asking us about how to use that camera because he wasn't used to taking pictures, and so we were coaching him. Right? Everybody else almost had National Geographic issued Nikon Fs or something like that, and we are gonna take these great pictures, and we ended up with like 10,000 pictures for the 10 people. And Dick was not expected, and he, didn't have, he himself didn't expect to take high quality pictures and things. Some years later, I was here talking with an editor, Andy Brown, about a different expedition, and he was trying to tell me the importance of having superior cameras. And I said, Andy, do you remember that three-page spread in the National Geographic on our expedition? It was the biggest picture in the National Geographic. And he said, yeah, I like that, it's in my basement. And I said, do you know that that was taken with an Argus C3 camera? And he was just astounded and appalled, right? And Dick Wallstrom took that picture. And it's a, if you haven't seen it, go to the June 1967 issue, and there's a three-page spread, and it's just a
1: beautiful picture, and Dick took that picture. Thank you, Ichi. That's a wonderful point. Damien, you have a, um, a map with us up here. Um, uh, Damien was uh, working um, to remap the... Uh, the
6: high peaks of uh, the Vinson. Yeah. Yep. So these, these mountains you're looking at here, we've all flown over these um, on the way to Vinson. And when these guys came down in 2006, these are the mountains near the Union Glacier in the Heritage Range, which is just to the south of the Sentinel Range. Um, so compared to when the guys went down in '66, there's about uh, three or 4,000 people have now climbed Vinson. Uh, since about 1985 when they started taking people down and the base camp for those operations is now amongst these mountains so there's a lot of other things to do uh, uh, around about Vincent. This is, um, yeah, in the area, just uh, another one of the uh, local peaks. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's Mount Allen uh, which has just climbed in the last few years. And this is just south of that one again. This is Mount Liptak. So if any of you ever fly into Vincent, you'll be flying past these, these peaks. It's a um, lovely panorama here. Um, Conrad was the first to climb uh, Mount Craddock uh, some years ago. And uh, we made the second ascent of it and measured it and did some of the mapping there. Um, you don't normally get a, a view as good as this, um, but you see it when you fly in. So this map that I've got here, if a feature, you can hold that. So this particular one, John Evans has already signed it and the rest of the guys are going to sign it afterwards. There's only about um, two of these left. Well, this is the second last one. Um, the Amiga Foundation that I worked for for about 10 years uh, helped us make this. So we tasked, tasked the satellite to take four images and bought this nice digital image. And... Um, uh, put it together with a Chilean friend of mine, Camilo Rada, and uh, made this nice map. And uh, we'll see uh, a bit further. If you can Flick through that next one, and and flick through that one as well. Yeah, <laughs>
5: <laughs> that, that was
6: so. so um, in 2004, um, myself and Camilo and a couple of other people went up and. Uh, climbed Vincent a couple of times, measured it with the GPS, slept up there and the other thing we did was there were all these little peaks up on top and they're all uh, unnamed and um, so we climbed them all and we measured them with the GPS and a year or so later in about 2005-2006 I was showing um, the USGS at Reston out here uh, this new image and everything like that and this opened up a lot of new terrain which wasn't on the old map it was a smaller scale Um, and so I said, look, it just so happens that, um, John Evans and Bill Long already have peaks named after them elsewhere. So there's eight guys left and it just so happens that there's eight unnamed tops on the Vincent Massif. So I said, oh, you know, it, it, it might be a good idea to commemorate this as quite a significant thing. And I think the USGS to their credit agreed because they don't normally, uh, name things in Antarctica after non-government employees, and so this is one of the few things that was ever named after private climbers in Antarctica, um, which I think was a measure of the esteem that the expeditions held in. We, uh, they originally had other names before that, just temporary ones that we used, so if you see those, you can ignore those. But these are the final ones, these are official, they're on, on the record forever.
2: I, I think you can see how, well you can't see it anymore uh, uh, how closely well, why don't we talk about this
6: well, it's yeah, gone. Yeah this, this is them so this is um, just a crop I made of, of what's on this map here and when everybody signs this map it's going to be auctioned later tonight for the club um, so yeah the the map beforehand was the old USGS map which was just sort of blob of colours and we got this nice clear, uh, clear map. They originally took it and it at um, uh, Digital Globe flew the satellite over and it was actually a very good image that they sent us and we were in the tent down uh, on a glacier in Antarctica, which is how things have changed since the guys went down and we got the imagery sent to us in the tent and we looked at it and it was really really good, except there was a, just a small cloud right over the summit of Mount Vinson and you, uh, th- they'll, they'll get away with 10% of uh, cloud cover when they see the images, and so my friend Camillo, who's a lot better at the math than me, did the calculations on our laptop in the tent down on the glacier and worked out that there was 11% cloud cover on this image. So we, we emailed them from the tent on the glacier and said, can you do it again? Because it was $12,000 to get this photo, and said, can you do it again? And, and to their credit, they agreed, and about a week later, they flew the satellite over and, and got this absolutely perfectly clear image. Uh, which is fantastic. So you can see the, the, uh, the peaks there, the, uh, the eight peaks that were named after the guys. And John Evans's peak is a bit further to the north of Tyree. It's a, a fantastic peak. You can see that all of the peaks are of approximately
2: the same height. Yep. And so uh, uh, the second highest summit is 150 feet lower than the highest summit. Bill Long brought uh, a Brunton Compass, I think. What I'm a geologist.
3: Like? <laughs> what did you bring? I, it was a Brunton Compass, that's right. I'm a ge- that's a standard tool for a geologist. Right. Geologists in the crowd know what I'm talking about.
2: So, the- uh, so I got on top. Uh, we were the last group, Nick, uh, Dick Wallstrom and I, to climb uh, 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 Vincent. Uh, we were the third group. And... <clears throat> I got on top, and I looked around, and I eyeballed all these summits, and I was very uncertain that we were on the highest point. And it was not a very nice day, and so we didn't go climb what appeared to be the second highest. I never discussed this with John Evans until about two years later. And two years later, I said, you know, John, we were really lucky, because I was very uncertain we had climbed the highest summit, and what a bunch of uh, bad explorers we would have been had we climbed the second highest summit. <laughs> Remember the sourdough climb at Denali. And uh, so uh, it turned out Bill's Brunton compass was right and by 150 feet. Let me tell you... Uh,
6: that's pretty good compassing. And they they weren't the first people to wonder about that. And in fact, the, the team that made the second ascent of Vincent in 1979 um, made, made the mistake and did actually go up Sublime Peak first, as did a few other people. That's this one over on the left in that previous one. Yep, yeah, quick. Yeah, uh, in the, and go forward. That's Sublime Peak there. Go forward. Oh, other way. Other way. Other way. Right, so you come up here. The, the guys' camp was down here, and high camp is now over here, and you come up here, and a lot of people, they look over here and see Sublime Peak and wonder if it's highest. This is the summit here, and that's Silverstein Peak over there, and, and Pete Schoenings Peak over here has got the, uh, this big ridge here, which is the last big unclimbed feature on the Vincent Massif, if any of you want to get down there. <laughs> We'll just go to this next shot of Tyree to show you what the guys climbed back then. So this is Mount Gardner up here, which is the fourth highest mountain in Antarctica. And the guys came from the other side where Pete uh, cut those steps up and put a camp up here and uh, went pretty much right to the summit of Gardner. You climb right to the summit of Gardner and then you almost drop right off the side. And they made a couple of... uh, wreckies uh, down the side here and absailed down some um, some chimneys and things and realised it wasn't going to work and eventually put their camp on the coal here and they did try and go along the ridge here which Ishi or Brian might want to tell you about but worked out it was too slow, dropped down traversed, found this cool wire and then uh, Barry and John made a 22 hour push up to the summit of Triree and back which is a pretty amazing effort.
2: Actually this is the first time uh, I've seen this slide uh, and the first time uh, actually we've discussed this, but Damien uh, on a rare instance, is not telling you the truth uh, or not he 's not lying of course where's the where 's the pointer yeah, so what they actually did was drop down the glacier and then worked their way up into here and uh, this and then get to this notch uh, and uh in going through my uh, telephotos. Because we were we were up in here uh, watching them climb, uh, Dick Wallstrom and I, and uh, they actually came up through here. And I have a telephoto that I've just discovered that shows them on uh, this snowfield. They made their way to this notch and then around onto the face and onto the summit. But that's that was the first descent route. So. We have even even now we're still discovering things,
1: right? Thank you, Sam. Well, uh, this uh, we've run out of time, and apologies not being able to open it up to questions. But the panel had plenty of insight and great stories and humor, and it's been wonderful to have all of you together. The slide that uh, one of you put together here was the 60th anniversary. So in another 10 years from now, may we all be we're, so fortunate. We're optimistic. We're optimistic. You guys will make it. You guys are strong. So that's what uh, sitting in a tent does for you. So, again, thanks all of you for um, doing this. Uh, The National Geographic Society for allowing us to use the uh, fine facility here, and all of you for being part of the American Alpine Club. We'll see you this evening.
0: Thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, Mountain House. They create home cooked meals like chicken and biscuits leaf stroganoff with noodles, mac and cheese, and for dessert, raspberry crumble. Mountain House's meals are freeze-dried, which means they can remove almost all of the water to keep things super light. Then you just add it back in when you're ready to eat. Freeze-drying simply uses the physics of temperature and air pressure. It doesn't require any chemicals or preservatives. In fact, freeze-drying dates back all the way to the Incas. The process really hasn't changed in 1,500 years years. For 20% off of your purchase, go to mountainhouse.com slash Meister. You'll get a secret code to use at checkout there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mountain Meister. Hope you enjoyed. There are two other discussions from the American Alpine Club's Benefit Dinner Weekend. Uh, One of them is from Hillary O'Neill. It's called Defining Success Life Lessons from Wild Places. In this case, the wild place is Mount Makalu, the fifth tallest peak in the world. If you'd like to hear that, that's on our website, mtnmeister.com. There's also another one, 100 Years of Climbing in America's National Parks. It's a panel discussion. Uh, All of them talk about the unique evolution of climbing in America's national parks. Interesting discussion there. Both of those will be on our website, mtnmeister.com. The recording you heard today was from the American Alpine Club's 2016 benefit dinner presented by REI and the North Face. Special thanks to National Geographic. You've been listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen. My name is Ben Shank. You've been listening to Mountain Meister.